Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. This episode is brought to you by Kender Tires. With over 60 years of experience in manufacturing tires, Kender has been offering high quality rubber products for bicycles, cars, light trucks, motorcycles, ATVs, trailers, carts, golf carts. The list goes on since 1962 with offices and factories across Asia, North America, Europe. Kender distributes its products globally and employs more than 10,000 people. Now listen to this number. They produce more than 800,000 tires and tubes daily. It's easy to see why Kenda is one of the top five largest bicycle tire manufacturers in the world. Now I am lucky to be supported by them and I helped design, develop. I was involved in the passion and the work that they put into developing the new range of bicycle tires that they have that people use and compete on the World Cup circuit. Welcome back, sports fans. This is Moving the Needle podcast. Um, I'm Andrew Nietling. If you're new to the show, welcome. Thanks for downloading. Now, this has been quite the topic popping up lately, and I'm excited for my next guest, Dr. Hewan Spirits. And uh, he's a medical doctor, action sports doctor, and actually has started helping the Crankworks World Tour with things like concussion. Now, you've heard that word come out of my mouth quite a lot. It came up in the last racing podcast it's uh coming to sort of i think everyone's sort of knowledge now so doctor how are you doing today and i'm honored to have a doctor on the show wow hopefully uh, i can keep up oh uh, thank you very much for having me uh, it's a pleasure to be here yeah so um catch us up so you're in uh, queenstown now but uh born and raised in scotland and uh you've uh moved over to queenstown done a lot of riding yourself so it's not just a medical experience you have catch us up for some of the listeners that may be new to this oh um yeah so i was born in glasgow in scotland and went to school there um did my medical degree there. Um, my life in mountain biking started there, kind of got into that in my later teenage years, going riding kind of local park and woods with my friends and turned into a bit of a, a mountain biking super fan for a little while, which was cool. Um, me and my friends were always uh, pretty stoked on latest film that came out and I was really getting into it just when things like uh, Rome and Seasons were really big on the uh, big on the film schedule um, and went through my medical degree and got into the racing a bit more I can dive into that later in our chat if you'd like but uh, and yeah moved out to New Zealand after having worked in orthopedics now for eight years so bone and joint surgery and 
yeah, just trying to merge that medical profession with uh, what's become a big a big passion of mine, which is mountain biking. Yeah, and uh, how important do you think that is, having sort of an experience in sport or action sports and maybe knowing what an athlete might be going through or hoping to get back quicker than what he should medically? Um, how much has that helped you and, and do you think that's quite important? Yeah, I think it is, especially when you're, um, I mean, I don't think many of us realize how little support um professional mountain bikers have when it comes to medical care and what they ha- actually have at race setups and, you know, in between events, how good their care can be. And I think it takes more, if you look at most sports where like somebody ventures into that field, it's usually from within and it's usually somebody who has a bit of medical experience, but just loves the sport and wants to be there for it because you know, um, there's <laughs> there's easier ways for doctors to make money than to be into a sport that they're passionate about and try and help out the athletes in that sport. Um, you know, you can take more established career paths through surgery and through medicine than that. Um, but if you look at like a doctor who works at MotoGP or the guys who set up the the medical crew over for Supercross, you can tell it's just this burgeoning passion for the sport that really got them there and having that first-hand experience in it is why it happened and why it was so successful. Yeah, so uh, what prompted the move to to New Zealand? Was it part of this sort um, of uh, passion for mountain biking and passion for the medical side? Yeah, it was, it was kind of... Um, it was a bit multifactorial. Um, I first came out to Queenstown because I was loving riding so much. Um, I came out here in 2015 or 2016 uh, just to kind of escape the Scottish winter, really. Uh, and one of my friends had recently moved over and I just brought my downhill bike and rode for six weeks. Um and kind of made an off-season habit of that, to be honest, because it's a fantastic spot. It's um, it's Disneyland if you're into your outdoor action sports stuff. Um, and I was actually racing Crankworks. Uh, I was racing dual slalom uh, in Rotorua in 2019. And um, one of my uh, colleagues who was training me back back home said uh well there's this surgeon who works out in Rotorua you should uh you should touch base with him he's a good guy and uh caught up with him and he you know showed me what life is like in New Zealand a little bit if you're working in the medical profession and said do you fancy coming out here to work um and I uh got a uh orthopedic registrar job which is kind of like a you know pre-consultancy job um, in Rotorua and then managed to kind of negotiate myself into working more full-time in the athlete medicine side of things down here in Queenstown Um, and currently setting up my own clinic so it's been a it's been all go since that first trip to Queenstown really and that's a common story for people who tend to come out here it's a 
it's a little little ball of energy at the bottom of the world that seems to draw people in. Yeah, it's an incredible place. You mentioned MotoGP um, and say maybe Supercross and Motocross. That's probably a field you've also followed. I did I did as well. I know about that Asterix medical sort of system that they have, if that's still going. What's your understanding of, of how they've tried to support the athletes as well as maybe the series? What, what's your understanding of that? Have you been able to check in with that? I've had a couple of conversations with the guys who run um, the, I think it's now called the Alpine Stars Medical Crew. It's been kind of, it's had a couple of different title sponsors. Um, it's definitely something, you know, that's kind of the industry standard in high impact action sports, you know, supercross and professional motocross. That's as in terms of professionalism, the money that's there, the potential for injury and the need to control that and support the athletes with it, they are really, they are the gold standard for it. Um, and I was, uh, I was quite sad because I was meant to be going out to touch base with them and, you know, see how they work and like um, see if we could share some information based upon how things work in motocross and mountain biking. But uh there was this uh, very small global pandemic that uh, that happened to us all and uh, that slightly got put on the back burner for a while, but it's something I'm still very keen to do because those guys are top of the game. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been coming out a lot and uh, it's, it's uh, awesome to see in those sports. I know there's a lot more money in it, but uh, our, our paths connected pretty heavily now when i got uh, sent your instagram profile said you've got to get him on the podcast um, and i obviously did a research and saw your latest post so the reason this conversation is happening is potentially the hidden elephant in the room and and you can talk a lot more to how hidden it is but concussions um and for lack of a better term and no medical <laughs> knowledge from my side you know these are brain injuries uh that that we're talking about and sometimes a little bit too loosely of oh so and so had a concussion and decided to race so and so is having delayed symptoms a couple of weeks after having a concussion and we're talking about the concussions that have sort of come to the forefront here in the downhill mountain bike scene and uh you're Clearly a passionate rider yourself, done a lot of racing and followed these sports we spoke about. So maybe let's uh, let's open up that big can of worms here and, and hear your thoughts because you said it was a little bit tough for you to stay silent about what is a big issue in our sport. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, it's a big topic and it seems to ebb and flow based upon who is being affected by it at any given time, which is also unfortunate because by the very nature of how these topics of conversation come in and die down, it tells us that we're probably not managing it as well as we could be. Um, the When people look for answers on these things and the answers aren't immediately forthcoming, that's how this reaches a critical point. Um, now, as we record this podcast, we have a few high-profile downhill athletes that are in the throes of dealing with concussion. Um, 
And certainly, I mean, you can't say it, it's better than it was 10 years ago, obviously. We, we are having conversations about it and people are more willing to, you know, go and seek help. I mean, I know um, certainly Finn's over getting some work done right now uh, at the Athlete Performance Centre in Europe. And that's that's really positive, you know. It's uh, just because these things are happening doesn't mean there's no good steps being taken. And that doesn't seem like something that would have happened a while ago. But as you say, they are, the definition of them is traumatic brain injuries. And I think we're getting past that stage where they have been you know, de-trivializing them um, because concussion just used to mean, oh, you've had a bit of a rattle and you need to sit down and wait until you feel all right and then go again. Um, but there is so much coming out of years of professional sport, decades and decades of, particularly out of American football and rugby, where these repeated impacts and damage on damage and lack of awareness and rehabilitation are now bearing out some really scary statistics in terms of long-term health. And we, you want to see your friends finish their career as a professional mountain biker and live long and happy lives after that. There needs to be that assurance that people are being taken care of to reach that stage, but also there are the potentials for really severe immediate problems um, and second impact syndrome is one of them where people have a concussion, they don't really have the initial recognition steps carried out for them. They go back to competing with that residual damage and take another hit and that has unfortunately killed people before. Um, and that's a scenario that everybody wants to avoid. Yeah, and uh, you you spoke about uh, maybe the lack of knowledge, but I, I think the attitude towards it as well was, okay, you've taken a knock, cool, you're conscious, toughen up, get back out there. That seemed to have been uh, an attitude because of lack of knowledge and education in the field. But it's the same happens in downhill, probably happened in American football, even as kids. Okay, brush it off back on the field. You know, the lack of knowledge pushed us to have a viewpoint and sort of a strategy to deal with some of these things because it was so hidden. We didn't know. And uh, that uh, movie Concussion um, where they, they bring that to, to literally kind of everyone's household, CTE, and, and you can speak to the medical side of it. But from my uh, understanding and what worried me and why I took it so seriously was the repeated knocks, or like you said, if you've had a traumatic brain injury, a concussion, you're not quite sure the severity of it, um, and you decide to go back into the field of play, and you take another knock, say, on that same area, that's where you risk permanent damage, and you're saying it can be even worse than that. Like, we have to speak to worst-case scenario to maybe wake everyone up, as well as the riders themselves, just to say this is such a serious thing. And and you're right, there has been some positive movements and a lot of it that the riders are openly admitting when they've had a concussion and that they're going to take some rest you know yeah it's um 
things in medicine are very rarely straightforward, um, and especially when it's layered as it is in sport. Um, and I think the difficulty with trying to make responsible decisions with concussion comes in the fact that, you know, being concussed doesn't mean you're drunk, but it's the best possible analogy. And you're asking somebody who is not in the best decision-making place to try and prioritize things in a good order. Um, and if you are, you know, somebody who is in a points race for the overall at downhill or bit of pressure from sponsors and your manager to get some results this weekend and that's how it always is you know you are ultimately there to race and you're there to you know you're there to make money and you're not doing that if you're not on track um so it's um like it's a very very fragile situation that athletes are in trying to make decisions with their own heads on what to do with this, which is why large governing bodies and other sports have started saying, well, we start, we need to start making these decisions for athletes. We need to remove that onus from them and um, allow somebody who is a professional in that field and objective about the situation to make the best decision for them, both short and long term for their health um and it's becoming more prevalent in sport now and creeping its way into more and more fields um and as you say i mean things like that film concussion and more and more discussions that are had about this the better because more people are willing to accept it as something that we need to really framework our professional athletes around instead of trying to, you know, um, put athletes in this recurrent position where concussion is just, you know, un unavoidable um, and completely um, unmanageable aspect of their professional lives. Um, it has to almost be expected that it's going to happen and we need to make sure that their returns to professional riding are supported and backed by the people who are sponsoring them yeah no i mean it is such a tough subject to to speak about and uh your passion or knowledge into concussion when did that start to take a deeper dive into that side of it uh, after doing orthopedic? Or is it all sort of uh, together? Uh, excuse my, you know, lack of knowledge there. You know, obviously you're touching on a lot of it and you'll have a really big base knowledge, but now it seems like it's its own field on itself. Yes, there are, there's certainly, um, there are people who are very, far down that track of specialization in concussion. Um, and there are people who will, you know, as our care needs evolve, doctors have become more and more specialized into certain areas. 
And we try and all retain a sense of what we call general medicine and that education that you get through university. But that quite quickly can branch off and um, certainly orthopedics and sports medicine tends to go hand in hand. Um, so I've always tried to, you know, retain as much of that broad athlete medicine as I can whilst doing orthopedic specialty work. Um, but certainly when concussions started becoming more of a subject within the sport, um, particularly around 2017, 2018, um, and then kind of leading on to me having conversations with, uh, with Crankworks who have been exceptionally supportive of what I've been trying to do. Um, the need started presenting itself more as a doctor working within the sport. And that's something we, we are all constantly upping our game on. Um, and as with most things in science, it's uh, what you learned six months ago might be wrong now. So you have to relearn it and you have to, you have to update yourself. And I just try and keep myself at the sharpest end of that as I can. Um, but, uh, yeah, starting working for Crankworks in 2019 was that big, big point in this. And what I think really was the first time within the gravity side of mountain biking that this framework has been put in place. Yeah, talk more, talk more to that, uh, because I know when I was racing, I actually had one of my biggest concussions at a Crankworks event, luckily in Whistler. So there's obviously good hospitals there, uh, had, had checkups, um, and, and I had to sit out of Crankworks. Definitely team was supportive at the time. I'd had a base knowledge of concussions. Um, be honest that I've had some myself uh, and I'm hoping in hindsight that I was fully recovered when I went back and, and didn't knock on top of a, a knock I'd already had. But I was sort of left to my own devices coming back to the next World Cup, which I um, consulted doctors in England. But maybe we'll, we'll jump into that later because it's tough to get the support around the world. And it would be so awesome to have one doctor that can try connect whether you're in the same country or not. But uh, talk a bit about um, your role at, at Crankworks and maybe as a general role at a mountain bike event. Um, so the, the reason I started kind of working with Crankworks is, um, I was racing it. Um, so I came in from racing, um, four cross pro tour, um, which I very much enjoyed and slalom became a kind of, it's a natural kind of sister event of four cross in a way. And, um, I was doing a bit of racing and I was racing out in, a Rotorua and uh, uh, Matt Jones is uh, comfortable with me telling this story, but he had a bit of a fall during the slope style. Um, you, some of you might be familiar with the big on-off box at the Rotorua slope style course, and he came off that and landed on his head. And uh, had a chat with his uh, team manager who just asked me to check him out, and I ran him through a basic concussion test just to see where he was at. And I gave him some advice on what the kind of steps are for coming back to the sport. And um, he went 
back to the UK and got some help with it. And then we came round to Innsbruck the next year and um, he said, oh, I, I need actually somebody to sign off that I've gone through this return to play process for Crankworks. And so I thankfully having done the test on him before and known what he was doing with his recovery and retested him. And I said, okay, well, I'm happy to sign you off for this. Um, and then that led to a few conversations with Crankworks who have been very forward thinking when it comes to how they monitor concussions in athletes and making sure they aren't going back onto course before they should be. Um, and I sat down with them and they said, we said, well, let's try and let's try and get a proper supported framework in place for athletes. Um, it largely centers around slope style because um, you have two runs to your slope style competition and frequently around about a third to a half of your first runs, people will have come off the bike because they are trying to lay down some absolutely insane stuff on a bike. And that can be various degrees of, oh, they have a slide out on their knees to have a proper tumble. And we need to make sure that we don't send people up to go and ride some of the biggest jumps in the world again, 10 minutes after having just whacked their head. Um, so I started working with Crankworks on how we run that. A lot of it was speaking to experts in the field who have done it for rugby um, and pioneered the kind of 10 minute touchline test and when to kind of quickly pull people, people from play and give them a check. Um, and that support has grown into basically what a team doctor would do for a group of athletes now. So as well as doing all their concussion work, I do injury support with them. I check all their injury and illness statistics. So if somebody comes off a bike at professional level at Crankworks, I know about it and have seen it and logged it and checked what the outcome of it was to make sure we're not, you know, allowing people to compete in as safe a way as possible. Um, and uh, a bit of a double-edged sword, this one. Uh, I run a drop-in mental health clinic and it's fantastic how many athletes take me up on that who are just willing to come and discuss their mental health. It's it's very sad that there's that much need for discussion about mental health, though obviously it's an exceptionally positive thing, but even at the professional level, a lot of athletes are struggling with their mental health, which is quite it's quite sad to see. But it's obviously important that we're there to try and support them with it. Yeah, I mean, we've had Martin Sonnestrom, uh, and a prolific Crankworks athlete, and he's been very vocal and open about it, which was incredible because we've got a lot of po positive feedback. I think people, I think uh, top-level athletes are superstars and uh, don't deal with any mental health issues. Um, I, I see it as a positive that people are speaking about because it it's pretty damn understandable that uh, the pressures of high-level sport and not knowing if you're going to have a job next year um, if you don't perform or get on the podium, I think that can derail, derail anyone. Uh, it doesn't matter how mentally strong you are. And that was a topic I wanted to 
dig into as far as its concussions and dealing with the brain, even a healthy brain, um, uh, it's tough to manage. But uh, what is uh, what does that like touchline test kind of look like? So that's something because I've done uh, with uh, a, a doctor that was with the Stormers rugby team in South Africa that plays Super Rugby. So against um, you know at the club level, provincial level, however you call it, but it's a world world um, rugby organization. So I did the the test you do on a computer, a, ba- a, a baseline test. Now I'm not sure. How regulated that is if there's one for rugby i'm uh, you'll have to tell me but maybe help us understand say a baseline test that you do pre-season when you're healthy versus say like a touchline quick test um they are almost identical tests the baseline and the touchline test um they are set up by a large kind of um annual meeting of uh, so people from various different job backgrounds, so neurosurgeons, so brain surgeons, neurophysiologists, people who specialize in working with people with concussion, neurologists, kind of brain and nerve experts, um, get together each year and have this um, concussion and sport meeting and update what has become basically the the accepted standard of what a test is. And currently that is called SCAT-5, which might be a term that um, people have heard. And um, that runs you through a few different things to do with um, balance, concentration, memory, and um, as well as other kind of standard medical checks we do, um, especially on nerve function and your cervical spine. Um, so I will run one of those, uh, one of those tests with every athlete I work with at the start of every Crankworks now, um, to try and see what that baseline level is and to really inform, um, when there is a difference there and try and pick up subtle differences. Um, it's very helpful to have consistency there I think it's administered by me for the same athlete each time as well and I can track them over the course of the past few years and hopefully going forward throughout their career and see if that's changing you know um the memory part of the test is remembering 10 fairly random words uh, plucked from a several different lists and it tends not to be something that we see that should change in athletes across time. Um, it, you're, by the time you're a professional athlete, your memory pathways have formed fairly well and how you perform at this should be consistent. Um, rugby and to say they, they have a very, very low tolerance on repeated testing for this. So if you have your baseline score and the team doctor is watching, they have a special little monitor where they can see every single impact that happens, replay it. A big thing that we're looking for there is when people have immediate reactions to a head knock. So um, very frequently there's um, there's a fancier term for it, but Bambi stepping. Um, when people haven't quite got their balance after they've hit their head, 
that is an automatic I've seen my good rugby. friend Brendan do that in Switzerland yeah uh, I've I've seen the footage of Brendan do that and then hop back on a bike uh, which is quite scary um, and other things like um, you know posturing of your arms and things that you do many people interpret them as you having a seizure at that point and this can all happen so quickly in a contact sport where people are looking at the ball and sometimes it happens off the ball somewhere else. Um, and these doctors are combing that footage, looking for any evidence of this and pulling people from play for that quick 10-minute assigned test. Um, so that quick 10-minute test is a like abbreviated version of that SCAT-5 and if you do not meet exactly the criteria that you hit on your baseline, your your day is done and you are sat down. Um, the uh, the motto that has been instilled from this is if in doubt, set them out. Because you are the consequences for making the wrong decision on the flip of that are far worse than if somebody just misses a game. Um so they've done that kind of, uh, they've pioneered that model. It works within that sport. And part of my job is trying to figure out how do we apply this to mountain biking? This is an entirely different sport. It runs on a much bigger area. We don't have a nice little pitch that we play on where everyone can look at you um, all of the time. So that took a little bit of figuring out. But um, after a few years of running it now, um, thankfully, we haven't had any major incidents with athletes either wanting to return to play and not being allowed to or, you know, slipping through the net on it. Um, and the feedback from athletes has been great. And I would say that we probably wouldn't be sat here have, having this conversation if I didn't have the support of those athletes. And I'm very, very grateful for it that they've put that much faith in me to develop this for them. I think that's great to see. And it's almost like you, you mentioned uh, uh, sort of that you might be acting a little bit drunk. And we all know that sometimes you think you're doing X when you're drunk and you're doing Y. But maybe if they're signing into this as a healthy individual, sober individual, then I think it's great and, and you should give the responsibility over to the experts because you might feel you're totally fine, but you didn't see your Bambi stepping. You didn't see that you had immediate even concussion symptoms and you might say, no, I'm fine. I'm tough. I'm, I'm going up for the final. But uh, the longer term dangers, like you say, are so scary compared to, oh, I think I fractured my arm. I can push through this. Well, worst case, You've got a longer recovery, but a bone can really heal um, up to 100%, uh, you know, compared to a, a hidden injury. So I think that's awesome what you're doing and, and great to hear that we've got a abbreviated test to do sort of on the side of a track or at the bottom. So are you hoping that even other athletes, not that they would rat someone out, but just say, hey, man, we did see you crash. You're not really acting yourself. And if they're stubborn, maybe they're allowed to come to the medical tent and say, look, I don't want to tell on anyone, but I really think there's been a concussion and maybe you going over and, and deal with it. Yeah, I think it's about, um, it's instilling a culture of support there, you know, that by 
you know, by doing that, you are helping out another athlete. And um, that's, it comes up in conversations about our sport all the time, just how supportive everyone around the sport actually is for other people. You know, you walk around a World Cup pits, there's no, there's no real animosity between people. It's not about, you know, it's not me versus you. It's like, you know, we all do the same sport here and we all want the best for everybody that does it. You know, um, mountain biking is kind of a big extended family for a lot of us. Um, and yeah, that's, it'd be very positive if that happened. Um, I think some of the, um, the hesitation that has come from athletes on these topics is quite possibly from being tested by somebody who doesn't know them and doesn't know their sport because to be honest, the easiest thing to do as a medic in that situation, if you are, you know, if you are just there for the weekend and you're looking after people would be, you know what, if there's any doubt, I'm just going to sit you down, you know, that's you done. Um, and that's, something that we had to when i was getting into this that you know you have to earn that trust from the athletes as well that you are there to make a decision that's within their best interest and knowing how big a deal it is to pull somebody from a competition um how much of an impact that's going to have on their professional life before you do it um now i think over my time at crankworks i have signed five people completely out of competition for the remainder of a week. Um, but despite that initial pushback that I may have had, almost invariably within about 24 hours, the athlete comes to me and says, no, thank you. Like I was not in the place to be making that decision yesterday. And that's, you know, it's good that those guys weren't returning to contest but it's worrying that in other sports, they obviously are. Um, and kind of circling back to your point about, you know, being a doctor within the sport, I think I just don't see, without wanting to sound vain about this, I don't see how this would have worked if it wasn't somebody who was from within the sport trying to develop it. Well, I was going to ask, how hard is it for you uh, to to block the emotions, knowing very well that these riders have careers on the line? You know you're a rider, so you'd want to get back in there. But is it just a matter of blocking out the emotion and looking at the data of the test and the history of, of your athlete? Like, How hard is that decision to say, look, you're sitting out? I mean, I can understand if he's fading the test miserably, like a one out of ten. But what if it's borderline? What if it's in that gray zone? I've only thankfully dealt with a couple of those situations where it has been borderline. And I will say to the athlete that it is this is a borderline decision. And we like I try and encourage us to make it as a team decision, you know? It's um the best, the best decision is the one you make yourself in that situation, I think, um, with the support of a medical professional, just to caveat that, because that's not saying the best thing to do is say, well, you're wrong, doc, I'm going back. Um, 
it's it's unbelievably difficult. Um, you, uh, I have not obviously not competed at the level of a professional slope style rider, but I know what it is to want that much out of your sport and how um, how important that day is to you and that moment is to you, and the concept of it not happening for any reason is it's crushing. Um, but more and more we are looking at situations where if it's borderline then just take the time off and come back and fight better another day um is it really worth putting your health on the line to get that result that day when you could you know it's a very it's a very sobering conversation to have with yourself um and were i to let somebody back to contest and the worst should happen i can't i can't even <laughs> i can't even put into words what that would feel like so um it's very very difficult decision making um and it's why it's important to have that data behind you to make it yeah i definitely would not want your job it's it's tough even hearing you speak about it but having to be a decision maker like that but it did make me think that uh, i think this is such a positive because i have some first-hand experience with concussions and racing unfortunately still a big worry of mine which i think i mentioned earlier but i was at a race second maybe it was the last world cup of the season after the crankworks concussion and i'd seen the doctors in england i was feeling pretty good and, and i was trying to figure out my return to play uh, i wasn't sure if i was going to race in france and and i'll get to the reason of this background story um a little bit of altitude in marybelle I, I hiked up and I, would, I get a, i get a little lightheaded and i thought you know that's technically a symptom in my mind from consulting with the doctor but i didn't have a doctor on site you know, it would have been so nice to have someone to chat to, look at the test and go, look, unfortunately, I, I agree. You, you're saying you're feeling a little bit, but you're okay in these other aspects. Like my decision would be to not race. Then at least it takes the pressure off the athlete to say, you know what, the decision's been made for me. I don't have to think about it any longer. I don't have to worry about my career. Like it's out of my control. There's the data. There's the doctor I trust and, and the sport has trusted. So I think it's an incredible thing. And and to let the athletes put the responsibility with you, it's obviously very difficult for you, but you've got the knowledge. You can make an unemotional decision at the time when someone is actually not themselves. So I think it's it's really incredible to hear. And maybe that drop in um, other side of the medical tent, you said for some mental, I've heard a term mental fitness. I quite like it because it's almost a positive spin. Um maybe that's where post having to sit out a race is come and discuss it uh work through you know the worst case scenario like in 10 years is is competing uh your second run of a slope style that important maybe 20 if you look back from 20 years you're retired like how important is that really you know yeah i think as a as a society we are far more mental health positive now day on day than we were prior um and i can like 
as a professional athlete, some people may laugh at this, but I mean, I played, I played university basketball uh, when I, at, you know, kind of UK level whilst I was doing my medical degree. And it was, that's kind of all consuming for you when you're that into a sport. Um, and as you say, I mean, what really matters to you at that point when you're 23? I'm now thinking back on it 31, having rolled my ankle and demolished it like nine, 10 times playing basketball and had a pretty bad concussion playing basketball as well. Do I really notice that game that I missed? Not so much. I mean, granted, I wasn't making an income from it, but I do really notice the fact that I've got terrible balance in my ankle now from playing way too much on it too early. And I've got no ankle ligaments left at all. Um, so as I think you're right. It's about having um, somebody just to help keep you a little bit objective about the broader spectrum of life and approaching your career with that positive, you know, I like that term, mental fitness. Um, I try and do it with athletes in as positive a manner as possible. And in Whistler, it's great because they will drop me a message and I I call it my little uh, Fitz Lift clinic um, where we will sit on a lift and we'll just chat about what is going on with them. You know, is it coming to a tough time in the year? Are you looking to, what are you looking to do next year? Um, what's What's troubling you about your, your career and your life and you know these are professional athletes aren't you know superheroes um they they are people like everyone else who have if anything possibly more pressure than the everyday person in terms of how they manage their lives and having someone to talk to about that um I, I was honestly overwhelmed at how positive the response to offering that was. Um, so we'll sit and chat about it on a on a lift on the way up. And the best thing is you get to go for a ride after it <laughs> um, on the way back down and enjoy, you know, immediately after what seems like quite a heavy conversation. And it's literally a life goes on <laughs> um, kind of moment for them. So... Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy about what I get to do with these guys. And um, I've, I'll probably say this a thousand times over the course of this interview, but I'm so grateful that they trust me to do it with them. It's a, it really is a privilege to work with athletes at that kind of level. Yeah, but I, I think it'll be mutual. I mean, I'm listening to this and saying, shucks, where were you when I was there struggling along? And uh, yeah, just because they're at the pinnacle of the sport doesn't mean there aren't so many insecurities, maybe even more insecurities than some other aspects. I, um, Yeah, I'm blown away by this conversation because the topic of mental fitness, mental health comes up a lot. Concussions can lead to... Um, some other issues, I think, post-concussions. Uh, Tane's been vocal about it. It's it's spurring on maybe increased anxiety. These are all mental health uh, terms. And, and maybe that's where you are able to guide them to seek professional advice or get on a call with you and just be like, it's normal what you're going through. It's very normal after concussion. These are some of the, the symptoms. Um, 
no, I think uh, I might be taking this offline with you because it's a thought of mine is is to support athletes with the pressures they have, but also post career. I mean, when you stop doing something you love or that you've done for 20, 20 odd years, that is tough integrating into uh, society or, or finding things and and maybe speaking to someone that can understand it better is incredible. But what I maybe wanted to understand um, or bring to light is say you have an ACL injury and, and we've seen it in the mainstream sports. I mean, those athletes have to go through fitness tests to get back on the pitch. And uh, it's actually crazy that uh, not every sport stipulates um, a return to play for uh, a mental injury, uh, brain injury, traumatic brain injury. Like an athlete is happy to to take six months to come back from an ACL injury, up to six months, and, and do the correct testing and, and prove himself fitness. And then for someone not to be open that, okay, you've got a hidden Tra brain traumatic injury and now you're not going to take the correct steps as return to play and and now you're going to be angry at a doctor that won't let you back on the pitch i mean it's it, it just seems so silly to me but maybe help me with that side of it and then what uh, general return to play looks like we're not going to quote you we're not giving medical advice on this podcast on how you can get back from an, a concussion um yeah, I mean, ACL protocols, as you say, are like, they're well defined, but the athlete, you know, if you've had your ACL fixed, uh, your surgeon will be saying to you, you know what, in three months time, your knee's probably going to feel pretty good. But that's when you're most likely to snap your ACL again, because that's when it's fragile. And there is that objective decision making and that distance that the athlete's brain has from their knee um imagine you're trying to get your knee to make it's a very crude analogy but you're trying to get your knee to make decisions about your knee if we're comparing concussions to return to play and you know what athletes are getting themselves to do um so yeah you do need that outside perspective with a bit of distance and objectivity to help you make good decisions. Um, and I would say if you official medical advice that I'm very happy to give out is if you just quickly Google SCAT5 um, or concussion in sport, um, and I have some of this on my own website as well, all the links to that. Um, and there are graduated return to play protocols. And especially here in New Zealand, those are very strictly enforced, uh, even down to the school level of, um, of playing rugby. If we have 10, 11 year old kids who hit their heads playing rugby, they have to go to their GP. They have to get a concussion test done. They have to get signed off at stages of this return to play. Um, and making sure they are making each step without symptoms and without anything concerning and the ability to pull them back and slow them down if we need to. Um, and that is making its way into more sports as most of these things are. And um, I um, my, my tagline for this is must all progress be perfect. It, it can't be, you know, 
progress is gradual and it's um, about looking at what you could do better. And if somebody says, you know what, we can do this better and I can prove this is the way to do it. Just trying to take it on board and trying to improve how we look after people. Um, and I mean, that return to play protocol largely centers around step by step with feedback and the um, to, to slightly argue the opposite side of it a little bit, well, not argue it, but um, to say that it's not great just to go and sit people down indefinitely. That's not what we're trying to do. And there is increasing evidence that if you just sit people down and let them do absolutely nothing and don't try and, you know, rehabilitate them, it's like, imagine you injured a muscle and just told someone just to go sit down and not to do that graduated um, injury healing process that physios will take you through. Um, and that's what we are now trying to do for brain injuries. And it's about the right amount of load at the right time in a controlled manner until you get the evidence that the brain can handle it and then you can start moving on to the next step. And what, um, if money was no object, what could our sport do to have um, the best sort of uh, go at this? I mean, it's incredible to hear that you're going to be at, at these races, right? Um, is, it, is it a consistent team? Does it always have to be one doctor? I guess if you all have the same data, I guess you could share the load a little bit if there's lots of races. What, what, is it, what does it look like? Like you, I know you haven't been to these other sports, but I think you've got a good gauge of how robust their support is. Um, I've, I've had a look at how we would try and do this, uh, especially for World Cup downhill. I mean, that's, that's my passion. That's what I like watching. That's the, um, it's, uh, it's frequently called that kind of F1 of the sport. Um, but that model that they have in North America is a bit more sustainable because it all takes place on the same landmass. And um, it's a bit easier to have a truck full of, you know, full of medics and things that can go around the circuit and follow them around. Um, and it would be awesome if we had that for downhill. It would be a complete game changer in terms of managing all forms of injuries. Um, because essentially what they have there is a immediate stabilization center medically which in motocross you kind of just have to have because people could be on death's door after coming off their bike. Um, and it would be fantastic if we could do that for downhill and just have that constant presence of, you know what, medical care within your sport is a part of it. It's not a thing you go and seek away from your professional life. It is something that is there and part of it and constant. Um, pragmatically trying to put that in place um i mean what i currently do for crankworks i would like to try and do for downhill um i would very much like to be at downhill races and working with these athletes and running baseline tests for them kind of as a big team almost um and that's difficult for one person to do um 
and we do have kind of the ability to share that as a medical document and averages to compare to. Um, but that's kind of, if it were to happen, and I hope it does, uh, both for the sport and I would love to go and do it, um, I would see that being the kind of the little seed from how it, how it grows and how it starts. Um, it's a very, very kind of big hurdle to jump onto though, um, because that is a big commitment for a lot of rounds of the year, a lot of teams, a lot of athletes, and that's a big thing to manage. And if it were very simple, we'd probably have cracked the nut on it already. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't give it a try. Yeah, exactly. Progress isn't perfect. Is that, that was your term, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Progress is You would hope that we can start something. And there's... Yeah, incremental, yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying like science could be fact one day and six months later it can be disproved and and that's has a you know that's awesome knowledge is not finite you have to have a growth mindset and, and be wanting to learn and uh, needing to learn yeah it's such a challenge we understand there's lots of red tape and and i can hear so much that you just want the best for the athletes for the for the sport even the governing bodies we just hope that we can start somewhere, you know, because I think the athletes needed, it. and it was just ironic almost that so many riders were vocal about it just at Fort William race, you know. And what about all the rest? Every athlete is equal. There are definitely some athletes that are not maybe on mainstream media that have had concussions or had to sit out or didn't have the knowledge to sit out and might have raced and, and hopefully not had another issue. Yeah, kind of. Um, you mentioned my uh, my post that I put on Instagram recently, and two stories that have come out of that. Um, and we mentioned Tani in this, and I'll offer the a lot of respect to Tani for the the way that she presents herself to the global mountain biking community on social media, and how honest she is about conversations about her health, especially the recent one about concussion and the fact that she's had anxiety um, and, you know, troubles with that recently. But other aspects, you know, to do with women's health and other, like, you know, normalizing the fact that, you know, not everybody's perfect all the time and it's okay not to be okay. Um, and the more that we have those conversations and I'll just say it's great that she's, um, you know, that takes a lot of bravery um, to do that and a lot of respect to her for that. Um, it's on Tani's end, I mean, she's right at the top, right at the sharp end of the sport and she has a large company that will give her help with that. Right kind of underneath that, as you say, like every rider is equal. Um, one of the, one of the top guys in the sport mentioned how somebody knocked themselves out very recently on a Saturday and then lined up in the start gate on a Sunday and said, I can't see very well, 
and then broke their ankle on turn three or turn four um, of a World Cup track. And that's kind of maybe something we haven't discussed very much. But, you know, if you are competing with concussion symptoms, you're more than you're three times more likely to get any other injury whilst you're competing with any residual concussion symptoms. Now you do that, like going and playing basketball, that's a rolled ankle or something, you know, it's not great, but can you imagine, you know, you're lining up in the, at the top of a slope style course and, um, you know, <laughs> you're three times more likely to get something wrong and you're going through that amount of rotation with that amount of precision on jumps of that size. It's really not far-fetched to think that that's a potential fatal injury waiting to happen. Um, and it's very scary. Um, yeah, those stats are staggering. Um, and it just brings up so many memories, ironically, that I still have some. But uh, yeah, I'm poking fun a little bit at a incredibly heavy and, and dangerous topic. But I remember that I had issue with my ankle after the crash in Crankworks. Horrific crash, big concussion, sat out, did my return to play. And then I saw um, a doctor here, more on the Cairo side, but quite a holistic one. And he was working on my ankle and I explained how it happened, when it happened. And I mentioned the concussion. He said, okay, well, have you been checked out? Have you been tested? And and we did some work. And and uh, factually, my vision wasn't at 100%. Um, it, it, it just seemed like I had some delayed onset of sort of uh, delayed vision. And we did some adjustments. And I did some work with him over the next few weeks. And I could see where it improved. And he said, well, how did your races go? And I said, I yeah, I definitely would have liked to do better. He said, well, you weren't firing on all cylinders, that's for sure. And uh, I pray that I was uh, healthy up there, but I still had like symptoms. Maybe speak a bit to that. Can you be, or am I deluding myself? Like, am I not actually healthy upstairs? And that's why there's still sort of weird delayed symptoms of say vision or not having my vision um, at 10 out of 10? Delayed visual problems are becoming a more and more frequently reported issue after head hits. And um, another World Cup athlete is unfortunately looking at now taking some time out as well, specifically specifically just because they have they have anatomical changes, that is structural changes at the back of their eye from repeated hits. Um, and that can be either from, you know, the hardware, so your eyeballs and the nerves and things and how that takes the information and how it delivers it to your brain, or it can be a software issue. So like how that information is interpreted. Um, if people are interested in this, uh, one of our friends in the sport for a number of years, Annika Beerton, who recently retired, she unfortunately had a terrible traumatic brain injury a couple of years ago that forced her retirement from the sport and she has documented a large amount of her like the exercises that she had to do and so many of them are trying to get her eyes to just find a horizon again you know um i say very often that a concussion is like um having somebody hit your internal compass with a magnet and 
it takes a degree of time to recalibrate that and to tell your brain, you know what, you know, this is north, you know, no, this is this is actually north, and keep re keep turning you back to that. Um and that can form from, you know, difficulty with vision. It can form a difficulty with internal balance, the um, the balancing system within your inner ear and how your brain interprets that information and how it takes all that, including from your nerves. And, you know, um, there's a term proprioception. It's that innate sense of where you are in 3D space, especially very relevant in your ankles for walking and things like that to make sure you aren't turning your foot in and going over your ankle and how your brain takes that and loads it in with your vision and your sense of position. It's exceptionally complex um, set of calculations that your head has to do. And you'd rather that a factory kind of had everything in order to be doing it well before you ask it to run complex kind of calculus on it. Um, and it's very, very easy for just one little, you know, I'm, I'm bad for using analogies a lot of time, but one little line of code or one little piece of information coming in isn't quite reliable and quite proper. And it can lead to you generating the wrong outputs. Um, you, uh, I was listening to your chat with, uh, with Brendan and, uh, you uh, you very casually dumped out a term that I'm a big fan of, which is that uh, incompetent competence or unconscious competence, where you are so good at what you're doing that your body reacts to it on its own. But imagine there is a a little change in that really hardwired pathway, and all of a sudden everything that you do can be just that little bit off. Um. And that can completely ruin your riding um, and lead to you having big injuries. Yeah, I can imagine. So then you'd become unconsciously incompetent without even knowing it. We don't even have a term for that. Maybe you can come up with a term when you have delayed concussion symptoms. Now, my understanding, and please correct me on this or help me further with my understanding. So if you had a traumatic brain injury a concussion and you did everything right you did all your baseline you did your recovery return to play and you're healthy you signed off healthy you feel healthy but more importantly factually you're healthy and you're competing again are you kind of out of the danger zone if you had another concussion like i'm trying to understand if you like pastrana has spoken about it and he said he's gone for all the tests and he's healthy and uh I bloody well hope he is, and I respect him so much. But are you just then like more susceptible to concussions in the future, but you're out of the danger zone of like permanently injuring yourself because you've recovered from the first one? Do you understand the twofold question there? Yeah, um, I think I do. Um, I think it's about, you know, um, to, to answer your question with another analogy, and I'm sorry, but we all, people who, no, there are people who will smoke, a, there, there are people who will smoke a hundred cigarettes a day for their entire life and never have a problem. There are people who will live perfectly by the book on things and they'll never touch a cigarette in their life. And unfortunately they have lung cancer. Um, and there is every increment in between that. 
Um, and um, sorry, I'm just trying to formulate my response to this. Um, we just try and minimize that risk every single time. You know, the reality is you are doing the sport, you've fallen off and you've hit in your head. That's almost that's almost unmodifiable. We can't stop people from crashing. Um, companies who specialize in making the safety tech, they, again, are like, they're just looking at minimizing risk. It can't be fully eliminated. And when that happens, when that crash happens, we just say, you know what? What gives you the best percentage chance of returning to your sport and not having long-term problems? And that is an ever-evolving field and more and more evidence will come out on this in time. And we will end up changing what we do. We will end up looking back and I really hope in four or five years' time, I'll be sitting somewhere and somebody will remind me of, remember that time you chatted to Andrew on his podcast and how far behind we were at that point on how we do this. And that's that's a great thing um, because it means we've made a whole load of progress. Um, but when it comes to those repeated hits, we have to just make sure that we are returning people to their sport at the point where they function without concern about how they're functioning. Um, and again, we, again, on that kind of mental health versus mental fitness thing, right? We're using the term function here, or I'm using the term function. We want people to excel at what they do. Um, they should be going back and excelling at what they do consistently. And that's, you know, my job is to get them back to that point. Um, and if they are having repeated hits and they are no longer excelling at what they do or they are struggling to day-to-day -day function either within their sport or in general, there is a problem. Um, and we just try and strip it back to the bare bones again and rebuild. Um, but you mentioned, you mentioned Travis Pastrana. Um, the man has had more injuries and surgeries than probably the population of a small country. Um, and uh, I, I really hope he doesn't have any issues further down the line, but sometimes this gets, um, I mean, CTE very often isn't picked up until post-mortem, unfortunately, when we look at a brain after somebody has died. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really hope he uh, never ends up there. Um, well, you you spoke about the CTE, and and uh, I've I've heard him on some podcasts, and uh, they mentioned that him and the Nitro Circus crew went for tests. Um, does something exist minus obviously these baselines and return to play, but like medical tests? Say I went in ten, fifteen years. It sounds like you said CTE doesn't really a test doesn't really exist unless it's post-mortem but is there anything else to say okay needles you can sleep a little bit better at night your brain function is pretty healthy um it just seems like it's as you've mentioned like a moving science 
Uh, I read a book on Alzheimer's and sort of delaying that onset um, by, you know, it's all the basics, Uh, good social network, um, learning a new skill, good sleep, good health. Like you can delay some of these onset or or help your brain health. But where are we at with these sort of tests? You know, you can test other things in the body. Slightly more complex than the field that I work within at present. I mean, most of what I do is recognition and treatment. And if we are not cracking the treatment, that's where neurophysiologists, neurosurgeons, and neurologists step in. Now, exceptionally smart people within this field who are down that specialization track really, really far. Um, and there are more advanced kind of uh, neurophysiological tests than SCAT-5. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good functional quick identification and tracking tool, um, but there are more involved tests for balance and for vision. Um, I mean, for looking at brains, um, People with chronic concussive issues will sometimes look at getting functional MRIs, which is looking at where blood flow goes to certain areas of your brain based upon tasks that it's assigned in an MRI scanner. Um, There's electrical stimulation therapy for areas of brain that aren't quite working the way that they should be. Um, I had a a very interesting conversation with Darren Bearclaw about that at uh, at Hardline a few years ago, and he was telling me firsthand about the experience of having that done, which was in one part horrifying, one part fascinating to listen to, um, where he would have identified that this area of brain had damage from this functional MRI scan, and received this electrical stimulation therapy to try and get it back working the way it should be and was a complete grumpy mess for the next couple of weeks as that area of his brain started to wake up again when it was poked and prodded and tried to get working. Um, For the 99.99% of cases though, and for the people at home and for, again, most athletes, It is about trying to recognize the injury, restrict as we need to, and then rehabilitate, um, much like any other muscular injury. And more often than not, that that puts us in a place where we are happy with how we've managed it so far, or as happy as we can be. Problems from that point on are more complex, though. Well, yeah, that that was uh, brilliantly described. Thanks for that. And I definitely understand, even though my question was a little vague there, but it it just, something came to mind. I'm just thinking for uh, everyone that loves the sport and and fans at home that go out riding on the weekends if they get a chance, I mean, they barely have support. I couldn't tell someone in my hometown which doctor to go see because of a concussion. I would start at this uh, Guru Cairo that I saw, and say, cool, we can obviously do, you can do some testing, but, you know, medically, who's a concussion doctor? Then I guess I would go to the sports science. But that's only because 
I've been lucky enough to compete how I did and, and form these connections and work with, say, these high-end doctors at sports science. But, like, it's quite an interesting topic that there's not that many concussion doctors. There's not, no. Um, and how being honest as somebody who's worked in the medical field in a couple of different countries now, there's variability in how the, if you were to line up all the doctors, uh, and there is a scale of how they will, their knowledge base on concussion and how and what they will do. And, you know, it's, uh, I would say on the whole in the UK, the level of, input for somebody with suspected concussion is less than it is here in New Zealand. Um, but New Zealand is a country that is exceptionally sporty. It, one of its main sports, is, well, its main sport is rugby. Um, pretty much everyone here can tell you what the All Blacks score was yesterday kind of thing. And most of the people who work in the medical field are very sporty as well. So there's just that little bit more knowledge of the subject and interest. And the, the answer to, to give you the safest possible answer to your question of what to do if you suspect somebody has had a concussion is to, if you're out riding with someone and they fall and hit their head and you have concern, you take them to an emergency department. That is the only safe thing to do at that point. Um, it's It shouldn't be a case of, oh, I don't know if I took someone there and I didn't need to. What if I was wasting anyone's time or wasting like wasting doctor's time? You are not wasting doctor's time by doing that. If somebody's fallen and hitting their head, you take them to go see a doctor as an emergency. You let them run the necessary things that they need to run the necessary checks and tests if they need like scans or anything if it needs to happen and the best possible outcome from that is you're you're completely fine you know or you know there's nothing serious here right now and this is now what you need you can safely do at home that is a fantastic outcome of any of any head hit and a trip to see a doctor at an emergency department and i would have the lowest threshold possible as somebody out riding my bike with my friends, if one of them hit their head to say, let's just take, take you to get checked. It's, um, it's the only safe answer to that question, to be honest. Yeah. When in doubt, take them to the emergency room. Of course, why not be safe, especially with something that you brought to light is so incredibly dangerous if left untreated unmanaged i've got some funny stories now they're funny of between me and my brother hitting our head my poor parents but um so my my late dad was a, a commissaire and active in the sport and he was an event in south africa and the the area of the event was called to hell so obviously hell and it was this sort of town in the middle of nowhere and i think he went down quite a gnarly mountain pass to get in there so me and my brother went on a photo shoot. Might have been with Sven. I'm not sure. 
and this is such a word of warning. We were just checking out this like concrete sort of quarter pipe thing. And my brother might have barely been rolling, but hadn't put his helmet on yet. And his wheel slipped off like the ledge. And he just literally quite slow speed knocked his head on, on the concrete. Um, and we knew right away he was, uh, memory wasn't great. We had to stop the car for him to um, uh, throw up. Um, and then we got home. So now it's quite like it's funny as a brother because he's asking the same questions. My poor mom, though. So she came in. What's going on? Uh, he he kept asking, well, where's dad? So we said he's at a race and he kept doing it. But which race? You know, five minutes later, he's gone to the race into hell. And my brother just looked. I said, well, that's not very nice. And he couldn't put two and two together that that was a location we'd said. But that's bringing some light to what is a, a dangerous side. But I did want to ask you, so old wives tell, don't let someone fall asleep on a concussion. Is is that so you can, you want them awake so you can like monitor their symptoms? What's that all about? It's, um, yeah, that is a bit of an old wives tale, to be honest. Um, there was a, a worry that, um, I can't remember how long ago that dates back, maybe 40 years ago plus, that if somebody fell asleep that you might not be able to wake them up, that they might be comatose at that point. Um, the thing that your brain wants to do when it has had an injury like that is try and uh, reduce the amount of input it's getting, reduce that amount of stimulus. And trying to go to sleep is something that it will naturally try and do. Um, so no, it's not the end of the world if people are trying to go to sleep after a head hit. Obviously, as an everyday kind of person out and about with your friend, if they've hit their head and they are feeling on and off sleepy after it, that's that's very serious. That means mm. this person needs an ambulance and they need to go to a hospital really quickly. Um, they may have bleeding within their head. Um, there may be a serious fracture at the base of their skull that needs medical intervention really, really quickly. Um, and once you reach that kind of more safe point where you're at that emergency department, then you can start making kind of decisions from that point on about how serious things are. But I would I'd again just stress if if you're out with your friends and someone hits their head, that is the safe thing to do. It's to go and get them checked right away. Yeah, I'm almost hor just horrified at myself or family, but it's lack. It was lack of knowledge. We're talking fifteen, twenty years ago when some of these uh, crashes happened, and it was monitor them, don't let them go to sleep. Okay, they're asking the stupid question over and over and over. But uh, yeah, in hindsight, it should have been straight to the hospital. Why wait a day or two to check the symptoms are subsiding? Go straight to the hospital. You and you've been great with your time. And uh, look, tough subject to chat about. Like you say, it's a ever moving science, uh, which is which is great. Um, where what else have we maybe missed, or do you want to leave anyone with? Um, that I might not have asked you or you want to sort of clarify or help them moving forward? Um, yeah, I hope we've tried to 
keep it fairly entertaining and light on what's a, a very serious subject. And um, yeah, I mean, talking about things that have happened to us, I mean, looking back on it, yes, yeah, some of the things we do after we've hit our head can be, I mean, it objectively can be quite funny. Um, I've done some silly things after I've fallen off my bike and hit my head. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't want everyone to think I'm just a harbinger of doom in this situation all the time um, because um, it's something I want people to be positive about and, you know, um, just recognize it and um, have a, a good low threshold for seeking help on it. Um, that's kind of would be my take home point. Um, it's a, it's a, again, an ever evolving field and one that as a medical profession, we will just keep trying to get better at as well and keep trying to lead change in a positive way. Um, and I hope in our sport that continues. Well, uh, awesome. But thanks so much for what you do and uh, are going to continue to do. And I'll definitely, I say it often in the podcast, but I will for sure link to um, your clinic, what you do, and maybe there's some support stuff that we can put in the show notes here. Thanks again, no, really, for what, what you do. And, and uh, we'll probably link up, um, depends when I release this, we would have linked up in Innsbruck or not. Maybe I'll come for a baseline test. Why not? If you'll have me and then I'll have a bit further knowledge on it. But to everyone out there, go check out Ewan. Um, what is it on Instagram again? It's Action Sports Medical. That's the one. Um, and um, there will be some support things available on my website, which links for my Instagram. It's just actionsportsmedical.com. Um, and I'll give you all of the advice that I would be giving to anybody um, to put in the show notes as well for if you've got any questions about it. Well, how awesome is that, guys? Thanks so much for downloading, listening. Uh, definitely hit up Hewan on Instagram. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, if you like this episode, leave us a review. Share it with a friend. I think this one could be quite a good one to share with someone that's maybe gone through a concussion having trouble with uh, mental fitness, you name it. Uh, the top athletes in the world are being more vocal about it, which is awesome. So uh, till the next episode, stay well. This episode is brought to you by Kenda Tires. With over 60 years of experience in manufacturing tires, Kenda has been offering high-quality rubber products for bicycles, cars, light trucks, motorcycles, ATVs, trailers, carts, golf carts, the list goes on since 1962. With offices and factories across Asia, North America, Europe, Kenda distributes its products globally and employs more than 10,000 people. Now listen to this number, they produce more than 800,000 tires and tubes daily. It's easy to see why Kenda is one of the top five largest bicycle tire manufacturers in the world. Now I am lucky to be supported by them and I helped design develop i was involved in the passion and the work that they put into developing the new range of bicycle tires that they have that people use and compete on the world cup circuit 